Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 31. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. We talked about that advantage this morning, having the advantage of the scriptures, the advantage of the oracles of God being committed to you, and also the advantage of being able to study through the first three chapters of the book of Romans during Sunday school this morning. Um, the Apostle Paul has written the book of Romans to the Roman believers. And these Roman believers are behind enemy lines. They are living in a place of intense persecution, intense opposition, and there is a lot to discourage them there. So the book of Romans was written to encourage the Roman believers in the gospel. And that's what Paul is sticking to here. He's sticking to the gospel. He has been in chapters 1 through 3 laying out the case for the gospel, why the gospel is needed, why it is important. And the way he establishes the importance of the gospel is by demonstrating our own sinfulness. He demonstrated in chapter 1 the sinfulness of mankind, which most tend to regard as belonging to the lost world. When we read chapter 1 and we're going through the sins listed in chapter 1, we're thinking about people who are not Christians. And you read those activities in chapter 1, you're like, yeah, this does not seem like Christian behavior. And so we read chapter 1, uh, verses 24 through 32, through the end of the chapter, and you're reading a lot of debauchery. You're reading a lot of filth. And, and this is something that is not characteristic of Christians. And so we tend to write that off. Well, that's just the lost people. That's just the lost world. And the people of Rome were probably making the same mistake because in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul begins with, And thou art inexcusable, O man, because you're doing the same things. 
It's important to remember the book of Romans was written to save people. It was written to a group of believers. In fact, all of the New Testament was written to believers. The New Testament does not speak directly to lost people. It speaks to us. So when the New Testament is condemning sin, it's addressing us. It's addressing what's going on in our lives. And by extension, sin condemns the rest of the world. But the Apostle Paul is making the case that the gospel is important. Yes, the world is lost. Yes, the world is evil. But we have this sin in our own lives too. We still need the gospel. This is important. He's laying out the importance of the gospel. And he is seeking to encourage us by showing us that God has given us this amazing gift of the gospel. Chapter 3 begins with a question. In chapter 3, verse 1, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of the circumcision? What advantage do we have? We just made the case that we're just as sinful as everybody else. What's our advantage? What's the point? I've been going to church my entire life. And you're telling me that there's no difference between me and the rest of the world. What was all this about? What was my life, my life, my childhood growing up in church, the years I spent being involved in church, the, 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 the call to the ministry and the surrender to the ministry, what was that all about? What advantage is there? In a theological eloquence that can only be inspired by God himself, Paul begins to demonstrate how we are both sinners before God, yet we have the advantage of being saved by God's grace. You are just as guilty as everyone else, but you are not the same as everyone else. You are no better than everyone else, but you have a privilege that they do not have. Thus, you are not to be prideful. You are not to look at yourself and say, man, I must have it going on. You are not to think of yourself as having accomplished something, but rather to be thankful, but rather to see the blessing that God has given you as just that, a blessing, to be thankful, and you should be driven by compassion on the rest of the world, because there I be. I know I've got struggles, I've had struggles, I have struggles, and I will have struggles, and I see people with the same struggles. I'm learning to be compassionate on that. I'm learning to see their struggles as my struggles because I know what it's like to have a struggle. That's spiritual development, that's spiritual growth. We are to be driven by compassion on the rest of the world. So in looking at this passage in Romans chapter 3, we're going to learn three things. Actually, we could learn a lot more than three things. But we're going to focus on three things this morning. The first thing we're going to focus on is the fact that we are all guilty before God. We are all sinners. The second thing we're going to look at this morning is we are saved by God's grace. It is by his grace that we have this blessing, that we have this great good thing. And we are also going to learn that we are saved through faith. So we're going to learn this morning. So first, let's talk about the guilt. The guilt, the grace, and the faith. That's how you can remember this morning. The guilt, the grace, and the faith. Let's talk about the guilt. We are all guilty before God. So the Apostle Paul has lined out the fact that the gospel is necessary 
because the world is sinful, mankind is sinful, but we're not to think of ourselves as somehow having stepped out of that because we're sinful too. We're sinful too, but what advantage do we have? What was the point of our religion all these years? He said, well, the advantage was you had the oracles of God committed unto you. You had the word of God given unto you. You have been blessed with the words that lead to salvation. Oh, good, so God gave me something special here. He gave me something special. Does that mean I'm better? And that's verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Apostle Paul has just written that we are just as sinful as the lost world. And then when asked about the advantage, he says, unto, it, unto them or unto us were committed the oracles of the word of God. Does that make us better? Does God see something good in us? Paul answered with an emphatic no, no. No and no wise. If he had been a Texan, he would have said, no, no way, nuh-uh, no how, ain't happening. Y'all ain't nothing is what he would have said, okay? Like no and no wise. Like we cannot be any more negative than this. Like there is not a single universe in the metaverse, because that's a thing now. There is not a single universe in the metaverse where we are better than they. We have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Have you not been reading my letter, is what he's saying. We have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. So no, we are not better than they. No, we are not better. No, there is not some inherent goodness in me that God saw that he decided he was going to save. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is not a single one of us who has righteousness in and of ourselves apart from God. Not a single one of us. In fact, the interesting thing about no, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is not the Apostle Paul continuing his emphatic plea that there's none righteous. He's actually quoting scripture here. He's going back to Psalm 14. He's quoting the Psalms. And there's, there's, there's something interesting about the book of Romans. So many times Paul will be quoting scripture as he's writing the book of Romans that you don't even realize he's quoting scripture. But it is scripture, and scripture interlaced with the inspired words of God. Even when Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is still referencing scriptures. He doesn't depart from them. Never follow a teacher that says, the Bible says, but. Never follow a teacher who has found a new truth outside the scriptures. Because the Apostle Paul is actually writing the scriptures. And as the Apostle Paul writes the scriptures, do you know what he's referencing? The scriptures. You will never receive a revelation from God that runs contrary to the scriptures. A man can walk in here and he can take that bottle of water and turn it into a bottle of Diet Pepsi, which is what I drink because no sugar. And I will still believe what the Bible says over what he says. There, is, there are none who have righteousness in and of themselves. When God looks at humanity, he sees his own creation in continual rebellion against him. That's what God sees when he sees the world. From a distance, the world is not round and clear. From a distance, the world is just as much in rebellion as it is up close. In verse 11, he says, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Again, he's referencing the Psalms here. There are none of us that understand what God understands. There are none of us who understand our eternal condition, our spiritual condition. 
We may have knowledge of it. We may know whether we're saved. We may know whether we're lost. We may know that we struggle with sin, but we don't have the full understanding like God has. There's none that understands. There is none that seek after God. If you are seeking after God, it is because the Holy Spirit is drawing you. None of us in and of ourselves seek after God left to our own devices. For us to seek after God, God has to be intervening in our lives. The Holy Spirit has to be drawing us. Most of the time, God has to bring external issues into our lives to make us look up. None of us seek after God on our own. There is none righteous, no, not one. None that understandeth, none that seeketh after God. And then he begins in verse 11. He's going down through verse 19. He starts listing just how awful everything is. They are all gone out of the way. This is talking about sheep, the sheep that have gone out of the way, the sheep that have left the fold, the sheep that have wandered off. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. It gets really awful here. In verse 13, he says, their throat is an open sepulcher. They speak death. And they have bad breath, too. I'm just kidding about the bad breath part. But their throat is an open sepulcher. They speak death. With their tongues, they have used deceit. You can't trust them. You can tell they're lying because their lips are moving. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Again, they're speaking death. What they say is destructive. They are hurting people with what they say. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They are quick to get up in your face. They are quick to resort to violence. They are quick to lose their temper. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. You ever known someone that everywhere they go, there's just drama? Everywhere they, go, everywhere they go, there's conflict. Everywhere they go, there's trouble. There's problems. And you, you get to see that they're kind of the cause of that. You ever know anybody like that? Destruction and misery are in their ways. They don't brighten up a room. They turn the light off. And the way of peace they have not known. There are people that don't know how to be at peace with others, how to get along with others. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear him. They don't acknowledge his existence. They don't think that he's going to judge them. They have convinced themselves that he doesn't exist. They may not say it, but the Bible also says, The fool saith in his heart there is no God. Now we know, in verse 19, catching up to where we are, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What you have here in Romans chapter 3 is you have a prosecutor laying out the case. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have before proved, this has been a proven fact, we have precedent, we have legal precedent, historical precedent that there is none righteous, no, not one. Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. That there's none that understands, there's none that seeketh after God. They've all gone out of the way. Here is the evidence. This is what you're seeing in the world today. Evidence, 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 evidence. It's all being laid out on the table. Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, exhibit D, and here we are at the defense table going, oh, ugh, ugh. you know, and, 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 and all the evidence is laid out on the table before us. And then in verse 19, now we know that whatsoever the things the law saith, it says to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Every defensible action, every defense I would have against all the evidence that has been laid out in Romans chapter 3 is so powerful, I don't have a defense. The evidence is so powerful, there's no way I can explain it. Leland, you were unaccounted for between the hours of 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. I was 
at the coffee shop. We have video at the coffee shop. You weren't there, but we do have video of you at the crime scene. I didn't know where I was. I didn't realize what was going on. We have your fingerprints on the murder weapon. Um, that was stolen from my house. We, you know, and, and they just, like every explanation, there's, nope, here's evidence to the contrary. Nope, here's evidence to the contrary. You get to a point where there's so much evidence, you, there's just nothing to say. I, every mouth may be stopped. What can you say? There comes a point when there is so much evidence against you that your only recourse is to just fall on the mercy of the court and, and beg for mercy. And that's where we are in God's courtroom here. The evidence is all there. We are all overwhelmingly guilty. Like this is one of those cases where the jury steps out of the room, pours a cup of coffee, takes a sip, walks back in, and declares a guilty verdict. If you're ever on trial and the guilty walks back and the jury walks back in the courtroom within 10 minutes, they're coming back with a guilty plea. They're coming back with a guilty verdict. That's not a good sign when the jury's only been out for a few minutes and they're coming back in to deliver a verdict. That's, it never works out good for the defendant when that happens. That's where we are. Every mouth may be stopped. Under the law, we are all guilty. Under the law, there is more than enough evidence to convict. We have no explanation. We have no excuse. We have no defense. Therefore, every mouth is stopped. There is nothing we can say. All we can do is just stand guilty before God. And that's what this is saying. By the deeds of the law, when we're being measured in light of the law, there is nothing we can say, there is nothing we can do. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law just sets the parameters for sin. You cross the line once, you're guilty. My eighth grade earth science teacher, Coach Keller, got out of coaching, got into teaching science, and that was a happy life for him. Later on, he retired from teaching science, and he became the director of the transportation for the school district. He ran the bus barn. An even happier life. He loved buses. There's a lot of stories about him and buses. I'll move on. But there was a child. Bus driver drives the bus, runs the bus route, drops the kids off at school, parks the bus at the bus barn, gets in his car, and goes home for the day because that's, you know, his shift was over. A little while later, this child gets off the bus and walks into the office. He had fallen asleep in the back of the bus on the way to school. That bus driver was fired. This became a news story. Child was unharmed. Child's okay. But this could have been tragic. And so the bus driver was fired. And Coach Keller told the media, he said he was a good driver. He was one of our best. He probably checked, and their job was to check the seats before they, before they left the bus for the day. He said he probably ran that check every day of his career, but he didn't run it that day, and that's all it takes. We had a tragedy averted. The driver has been terminated. That one offense undid a 30-year bus driving career. And there are stories of people who have had exceptional lives, but they have that one moment where they commit a crime, a heinous crime, and all that goodness goes away. That's the law. It doesn't matter how righteous you've been. That one sin makes you guilty before God. How many of y'all grew up watching college football with a certain admiration for Coach Paterno? He'll never overcome that. 
He'll never overcome that. That's the law. By the deeds of the law, nobody's going to be saved because it's by the law that you're condemned. It's by the law that you're revealed to be guilty. It's by the law that you know what sin is. We are not saved by the law. The law defines our sin and it shows us our guilt. But we are saved by God's grace. The Bible tells us what the law couldn't do. And the, the book of Galatians says through the weakness of the flesh. That doesn't mean that God came up with a system and it didn't work so he had to come up with another system. What the Bible's telling us is that the law couldn't save us. It's what the gospel does. It's what the grace of God does. We are saved by God's grace. And so the Apostle Paul has just gone through this prosecutorial statement where he finds that we are all guilty before God. Every mouth is stopped. There is no way we can defend ourselves. But, in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are a witness to the righteousness of God. That's nice. What does that mean? We're talking about the gospel. The righteousness of God, remember from chapter 1 last week, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And here we have all of mankind guilty before God, yet God is righteous, and his righteousness is revealed in the gospel, which is being manifested, revealed, demonstrated before everybody, being witnessed to also by the law and the prophets, because the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, set up the gospel, foretold the gospel, told us what the gospel would be and how it would come. The righteousness of God is fully demonstrated in the gospel. How is that? And what am I talking about here? Because you read chapter 3, Paul was a lawyer, and he writes like a lawyer. I was on the phone with State Farm, and I was asking for a requirement to get something done. And the, uh, the man at corporate says, well, what we need is a legal document that says this. But it's not going to say it that way. It's going to say it the way a lawyer would write it. I'm like, I get it. i got to find something in legally signed by a judge. Yes, okay. Paul writes like a lawyer. Chapter 3 can be daunting. But you don't have to have a Ph.D. Or, or a doctorate of divinity to figure this stuff out. It's simple when you go back to the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. God had law. You need law. Don't we all agree with that? We need law. I need a law that says that you can't drive 90 miles per hour down Orchard Drive. Kids are playing. We need a law that says that you can't kill people, that you can't rob, that you can't steal. God had a law. Man broke that law and thus stood condemned. He's guilty. And God, being a righteous God, being a righteous judge, will have to judge righteously. It's, it's not a righteous judge that lets a criminal walk out of the courtroom. That's the debate over the new Supreme Court justice, that she's not holding some of the most heinous offenders among us accountable for their actions. That's not a righteous judge that will not follow the legal, the legal precedents, the legal guidelines, and what the law says. That's not a righteous judge. I'm not telling you how to feel about the Supreme Court justice. I'm just tell, I'm telling you that a judge that lets a criminal walk out free, even though he's guilty, that angers us, doesn't it? Does that not anger you? 
I won't get distracted with that. God is a righteous judge. He has to come to a righteous verdict. But God does not want to condemn man. He does not want to condemn us. He does not. So God does the righteous thing. In order to save man whom God loved, he gave his only begotten son who endured that condemnation, that judgment upon himself, clearing us from the condemnation and saving us. Yeah, we've been declared guilty, but someone took our place in the punishment. Someone took our place in the consequence. And that was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything was done the right way, according to the law, for the right motivations, for the right cause. You don't get any more righteous than that. That's why the Bible says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, which is what the case that Paul's making here. The righteousness is bestowed upon all who believe. We did nothing to benefit from this righteousness. We did nothing to earn this righteousness. It was all done for us, and it was demonstrated in the gospel. The righteousness of God being bestowed upon us, that's God's grace. It's his unmerited favor, something he is giving to us that we don't deserve. Why is this? Why did he do this? What's the reasoning? In verse 23, this is the verse that everybody in this room knows. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you knew nothing else with that verse, you already know most of what you need to know for salvation. But this verse goes deeper than that. For all have sinned, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where are my English teachers in the room? Oh, Rachel's. Anybody here know how to diagram a sentence? Anybody here want to diagram a sentence? All right, Jalen's with me. We did this in seminary. We had to diagram sentences. Moreover, we had to diagram Bible verses. And the younger students had never seen this before because they don't teach this in schools anymore. And the older students, that were the students older than me, those were the older students, they were like, man, this was 30 years ago that <laughs> we had to learn this. So our subject in this is all, all, every one of us, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That word being just, uh, verse 24, where it talks about being ju free, justified freely by grace, by his grace, who's it talking about there? It's talking about the all. Y'all. The all. Me all. You all. Y'all. All have sinned, yes. But more specifically, this verse is addressing those of us who are redeemed, those of us who are saved. All being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us who have been redeemed, every one of us who has experienced the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who has been the recipient of God's grace, every single one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, even the most spiritual among us are only here and saved because of God's magnificent grace. All being justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he keeps talking about us in verse 25. He says, whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus. We're starting to transition from grace into faith here, but let's not leave grace behind just yet. Whom God had set forth, who's he talking about here? Whom God had set forth. We're talking about Jesus. Who, who God has set forth, his son, Jesus Christ, whom God had set forth to be a propitiation. There's a nice King James word for you. 
Propitiation. Which one of my kids want to answer that one? They're shy. Propitiation. They know because they've done this many times. I've called on them many times. They're being shy today. I blame Jalen. She's intimidating to be around. God sent forth his son to be a propitiation. A propitiation is a payment made to God for sins and a gift given to God to draw his favor. That propitiation, Jesus Christ, paid for, that's the remission, paid for our sins, remitted our sins. We have the remission of sins through Jesus Christ and was both given and accepted by God in his forbearance. God gave the gift for our remission of sins and he accepted the gift on our behalf for the remission of our sins. And that's how we have forgiveness. This again declares his righteousness. I worked for a man who owned a store. The store belongs to the man. He owns the store, the property, the building, and the contents. He paid for it. When they delivered those groceries, he wrote a check. They're his groceries. He comes in, grabs a soda, puts it on the counter for me to ring it up. Why am I ringing up your soda? You, this is your store. That's your soda. Take your soda and go. He goes, you don't understand. We have to keep the book straight. It's his store. It's his soda. But he wanted his books to be straight. So I was to ring up the soda. He, was gonna, he gave me money just like he was a customer. I gave him his change. It's all been accounted for. That's God working on the transaction that purchased our salvation. The basis for our salvation, the basis for which he justifies us, the basis for which he sees us as redeemed, he sees us as guiltless, he sees us as sinless, he sees us as cleansed, the basis for that is what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Now the question is whether we accept it or not. And so we're moving from the grace to the faith now. For by grace are you saved through faith. We are saved through faith. Verses 27 to 28, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Since God has done everything for us, what do we have to boast about? What do we have to brag about? Nothing. We have nothing to boast about. We can't be Pharisees. Pharisees like to show off what they have accomplished spiritually. We have accomplished nothing spiritually. Therefore, we can't be Pharisees. Since God has done everything for us, we have nothing to boast about. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? The law of faith. We have access to God's grace through faith by trusting and believing on him. And we are saved by this faith without the deeds of the law. There is nothing we can do. There is no ticket we can hold up saying, I've purchased my ticket. Well, there is nothing. We, we, we don't have a badge. We don't have an admissions pass. There's, there's nothing there to give us status. All we have is what Christ did for us and our acceptance of that and our trust in that. That's all we have to get us into heaven. We are justified by faith before we conduct one act of obedience. I had a really good radio career. I mean, it didn't go anywhere, but it was fun. It's like spending an entire professional baseball career in single A. I mean, <laughs> nobody knows who you are, but you got to play baseball all your life. That's, that's, that's a pretty good run of things, I think. One of my interviews was with a writer from the, uh, from the Church of Christ. 
and he wrote a book on covenant theology. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. And as we're getting the interview set up, so this didn't go out over the air, as we're getting the interview set up, he asked me where I went to church because he's going to evangelize me because he feels responsible for my spiritual condition. And I explained to him, I'm the pastor of a little church here in Brownwood called, back then we were Grace Point Missionary Baptist Church. You know, so, so you're Baptist. Yeah, he goes, yeah, Baptists are good people. He said, but we believe it's a living faith and not a dead faith that gets you saved. Okay, this is, this is Church of Christ code word. This, and, and we preachers, we speak in a lot of code. I'm not even sure we meant to set it up, but it's there. What he's telling me is, you're a good man, but you really need to start preaching that people have to be baptized to be saved. That's what he was telling me. And so I went ahead and addressed that. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Because this, this is our difference in doctrine. I said, you believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved? He goes, yes, that's a living faith. That's a faith that leads to obedience. And he's right, by the way. He's right in that your faith ought to motivate obedience. That if your faith is not motivating a change within you, then we have to ask the question, do you really have faith? It's a good point. But I asked him the question. I said, you're on a plane, and you're given to evangelism because you're evangelizing me right before I interview you about your new book. So you're given to evangelism. You're on a plane. You're talking to a woman. You're telling her about Jesus, and she accepts Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. She admits. She believes. She confesses. Plane crashes on the landing. She dies before she can be baptized. Sir, does she go to heaven or hell? And what he told me was, can't say. Because only God would know whether she had the faith in her heart that would follow up into obedience. I said, congratulations, brother. You just became a Baptist. The salvation happens. Yeah, I was younger and a lot more brash then. The salvation happens before we do one act of obedience. It's the faith that saves without regard for whether or not the obedience has happened. The faith ought to give birth to obedience, but it's the faith that saves. Therefore, a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. It just means that you're saved before you get there. That woman was saved before that plane even began its descent. Verses 30 and 31. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Nothing legitimizes God's existence. Nothing legitimizes God's existence, word, law, and scriptures like the gospel. Nothing proves his power like salvation. God can move mountains and the world will deny his existence. But if you experience his grace and salvation even once, well, you only experience his salvation once. You experience his grace and salvation once, you will never be able to deny him again. Have you experienced God's grace? We come before the Lord today. We come before the Lord today. We are all guilty of sin. We come before the Lord today struggling with sin. We come before the Lord today experiencing temptations and not just the trial and tribulation temptation but we're being tempted to do things ungodly we're, we're still being tempted we're still being tempted it may and, and it may not be the same sin you may be tempted with anger as opposed to sexual immorality you may be 
tempted with blasphemy as opposed to cursings and bitterness. You may be, I don't know what you're being tempted with, but we're all being tempted with something because Satan never lets up. He never lets up. But we all stand before God having been guilty, but having been cleansed, and having been forgiven. It's just a matter of if we have experienced that grace and if we are willing to live in that grace and to trust it. And that's, that's how Paul is encouraging the Roman believers. And that's how we encourage ourselves today because you may be in the struggle. You may be in the temptation. You may be in a trial and tribulation, not necessarily a temptation. How do you remind yourself to look up? You go right back into this passage. You go right back into the gospel. Let us stand.